Thanks so much for joining us uh, today. If we haven't met, that's uh, Arnaldo is my name, I'm the lead pastor here uh, at Southwest. And we're continuing our series uh, through Paul's letter uh, to the Ephesians. And I have to tell you uh, that as I've studied this letter, as I've paused over the past uh, couple weeks, and as we look forward to the next few months, couple months, um, the Lord has really been humbling me. And I'm really very much excited about what he has for us. And not just so that we can learn new things, but that we can put these truths to work. Uh, because I want to remind you uh, that this book, this book of Ephesians, this, this short, tiny letter uh, from Paul to a group of churches in Ephesus was uh, written for this reason. It's a community's guide for comprehending and responding to the apocalypse of the crucified and risen king of the cosmos. Now, if you haven't been here uh, and that seems like strange language to you, apocalypse simply means unveiling, an uncovering. And so the book of Ephesians helps us to reckon with what it feels like, what it means to live as if Jesus is the crucified and risen king. And this embodied response, the responding is just as important as the comprehending. Because I want to remind you of something that is Uh, has been at work here in this community, and it's this, that knowledge is only a rumor until it lives in the bones. So we can say all we want, we we can believe all we want, but until this knowledge becomes part of us, until we begin to practice this, it's just a rumor. We can climb the great heights of Paul's theology in this letter and plumb the dimensions of God's love for us in Christ. But until these realities live in our bones, until they become reflexes in, hidden in our bodies, this is all just a rumor. And so what, what I want us to become, what I feel the Lord is, is calling us to become, is to become a practicing community of these truths rather than just memorizing them. And with that said, let me pray so that the Lord would open up our hearts and minds to see what the good Lord has for us this afternoon. Father, we thank you again for your goodness to us. Uh, we thank you that in fact you are good and that the truest thing in the universe is that you are good. And so I pray now that you would help me to forget the things that are not going to be helpful for your people here today, and you you would help me to remember the things that will be. And all these things, Lord, we pray for your namesake. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And amen. I want to show you all something. It's going to come up on the screen here, and this is a test. You don't have to say anything. But I want to know, by a show of hands, if you know what this is. Don't don't embarrass yourself here. But just, I, I want to see. Hands up if you know what this is. Okay, this is actually where it all started for me and Catherine. This is the logo for AOL Instant Messenger. This is back in the day when we had a 56K modem and I had to beg my mother to use the phone line just so I can get online to see if this girl from Australia was on there. I was 17 years old, I had just finished high school, and this is the place where Catherine and I's relationship uh, began. This androgynous yellow thing, man, woman, I don't know what it is. It's running from somewhere. I don't know if it's running to something or from something. But fast forward a couple decades, here we are, 20 years later, and we spent a considerable amount of time in a long-distance relationship. And I remember as I thought about that, what, what were some of the feelings or the struggles that we went through? And there was this real palpable feeling of alienation that we had. 
There was this alienation between us. We were separated. We, weren't, we were alienated physically, but also culturally. I'm Puerto Rican. She's Greek Egyptian. I grew up in Brooklyn. She grew up here in Sydney. And so there were whole layers of alienation that we had to work through. Never mind the 16,000 kilometers that stood between us. And so when I migrated here, finally in 2007, there was a whole different kind of alienation that I had to overcome called Australian. <laughs> and you guys just don't know how hard it was for me to get it. I, it felt like I needed to get a PhD just to understand what you were talking about. I don't know if you were talking about afternoons or avocados, and I still kind of don't know when you're talking about what, but it, it was hard for me to overcome that. And it wasn't until a good, I would say, seven years or so that this felt like home, that alienation had subsided and this became home. And this passage here today, it deals with the deepest kinds of alienation. Not just the kind that you have from moving from one culture to another or having a loved one uh, live very far away from you, but Paul is going to help us walk through some of the deepest alienations of the soul and of the body. And this is the central reality and aim of this passage today, is that the cross of Christ obliterates not just the alienation between us and God, but the alienation between us and us. That the cross of Christ obliterates not just the alienation between us and God, but the alienation between us and us. The gospel, the true story of what God has done in Christ to reconcile all things to himself as king is not just about our personal relationship with Jesus. The gospel is an announcement that God in Christ, by the power of the Spirit, has defeated the powers at the cross, the powers of Satan and sin, and it celebrates this new reality that death will no longer have the last word. The gospel is not just a religious reality, but it is a social one. It is a political one. It is one that deals with our relationships with one another, not just our relationship with God. We need to move from this idea that the gospel is about me and Jesus, but about we and Jesus and the rest of creation. And Paul displays this in this book of Ephesians, especially by this, by never, ever, ever, ever using the singular you. And so when you're reading the book of Ephesians and you see Paul say you, he's not talking about you. You're going to hear me say this every single week because this needs to be drilled into us that the book of Ephesians was written for y'all, for yous. The cross of Christ obliterates this alienation between us and God. Absolutely it does that, but it doesn't just do that. It wasn't designed to just do that. It was designed to obliterate the alienation between us and us. And so Paul is going to walk us through this new reality in the next few verses. And we're going to tackle this by looking at it in three stages. The why, the why of why this has happened, the how, and finally the so what. So let's jump in. Ephesians 2 verse 11. If you have it, read with me. It should be up on the screen. Therefore, therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the circumcision by what, was, by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in 
the world. And so, Paul begins as he usually does with this sobering news of what it means of where we were apart from grace, apart from this word carrots, this gift of grace. And he calls us to remember, to remember something, remember where we stood in relation to God's ancient promises to Abraham, that we stood outside of these promises, that we were strangers, that we were outsiders. And there's this word that Gentiles, which by the way is anyone who wasn't a Jew, there was this word that they used for them, the uncircumcision. That's a real polite way of translating what Paul is saying here. It was a very derogatory term, and you would have to excuse me, but this is what the scriptures say. This is what that word means. Basically, a Jew would look at a Gentile and say, oh, look, the people of the foreskin, those folks. And it's supposed to be disgusting. It's supposed to be alienating. It's supposed to keep people on the outside. It was designed to exclude. The way you're feeling, like, oh, should he have said that? Yes, I should have. Paul did. And this is what they were called. This is what all of us would have been called, unless you're an ethnic Jew here, a Jewish person. This is what we all are, the people of the foreskin, those, those folks. It's meant to, kept, to keep people out. And nevertheless, there was a real, seemingly permanent separation between the covenant people of God, the people on the inside, the Jews, and those who were outside. Religiously, they were separate from God. Socially, they were outside of the commonwealth of Israel. Psychologically, there was no hope. And Paul doesn't mince words here. Even when they fail to see in their ignorance their need for grace, these verses, as harsh as they may seem, I want you to remember who they're spoken to. They're spoken to people on the other side of grace. They're never spoken to, the, to people who, who haven't received grace. I want you to remember that. And these couple verses, they take what Paul did and Verses 1 to 3 of the chapter, and it turns the focus. While in verses 1 to 3, we were, Paul says, dead in our transgressions and sins, our trespasses and sins, Paul here uses a different angle to say the same thing. And whereas in verse 4, you remember this exp- these explosive words, seven letters in Greek, three words, but God. And now here in verse 13, Paul does the same thing, but he uses different language here. He says, But now, in Messiah Jesus, this divine turnaround, you were separated from the Messiah, but now. You were alienated from the people of God, but now. You were in the world without hope, without God, but now. And this is is the how. This is how those who were far off were brought near. This is the question. This is the million-dollar question that most of the scriptures try to answer is that how is God going to bring to pass the promises that he gave to Abraham? And you need to understand you're all part of that ancient story, regardless of whether you're following Jesus or not. We are all part of this story of how is it that God is going to bring to pass these promises of blessing that he gave to Abraham for the nations. Read with me from 13. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. 
by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father." See, God tried to bless the world through Israel, and we know how that ended up. Through David, failed. Through Solomon, failure. Through the return of the exiles, failure. Through the rebuilding of the walls around Jerusalem, failure. Through the building of the temple, failed. And the answer here is, how is God going to do this? And it is through the blood of Christ. Now, the blood of Christ is reference. Yes, to his physical, he's probably like type O negative. Well, because I am, and it's the best kind of blood. It's universal. And so he, that's what he probably is. So let's go with that. It, it's, it is referenced to that, but it's also referenced in a much deeper way, connected to what the blood represented in the temple. You see, God gave Moses, this great prophet, instructions in the wilderness for a mobile temple, a tabernacle. And the whole point of this tabernacle was to have a place where heaven and earth met, a place of overlap. And we're going to go through this as we go through the book of Exodus later on in the year, but that is the whole point of having a tabernacle, of having a temple. It is a place where heaven and earth can overlap. And the way that these people who were marked by death and decay and sin would be able to be with God was to sacrifice an animal and shed its blood. You see, the blood itself was a visual and visceral reminder that there lay a humongous chasm between heaven and earth, between the otherness and the beauty and the goodness of God and the brokenness of me, of humanity. And temporarily, the blood of bulls and goats would allow this overlap where the high priest would be able to go into the middle of the temple, the Holy of Holies, and interact with Yahweh, with God. But we know that wasn't permanent. And here Paul is using this imagery of blood as a hyperlink for us and reminding us that it's through the blood of Jesus that we are brought into the presence of God. Furthermore, Christ doesn't just bring together God and humanity, but you, you, you heard there that he brings together humanity and humanity because remember, the cross does not just obliterate the alienation between us and God, but the alienation between us and us. And he does this by tearing down this dividing wall of hostility. What is Paul getting at here? What, what is this wall of hostility? Now, Paul's doing something really cool here. He's actually pointing to a physical barrier that was actually present around the temple, but he's also pointing to something much deeper than that. I want to show you a picture here. This is uh, a reconstruction of the temple. This is what it would have looked like. Now, this is no longer there, uh, but this is what it would have looked like, and this was the temple that Jesus would have been familiar with. This is the one that he went to. This is the place where when you read in the Gospels where Jesus was tossing over uh, the, the, the money changers, that was all happening just all outside here, somewhere around here. So this is what the temple was, okay? The temple was 
marked out by different barriers, and it, it actually allowed different kinds of people in. And so if you would allow me this barrier here, can anyone see that? That barrier here, you would see it? That barrier there, that was the barrier. You can, if you were a Gentile, you could go up to there and no further, period. Now, this inside court here, this inside court here was for both men and women. So if you were a Jew you, and you were a male or female, you could be inside of that court. But up these stairs here, you would bring your sacrifice to the priest. And only men, only men were able to transcend these stairs here. And inside here was the, the court of, of a Jewish men. And then further inside, you could only go if you were a priest. And then further inside, there was this one place called the Holy of Holies, where once a year, the high priest and only the high priest would be able to go in. And so you see the stratification. And on that barricade, it read something like this. Josephus, he was a Jewish historian in the first century, says that the barricade was about 1.4 meters high. And all across that humongous barricade, this was written in both Latin and Greek. No foreigner is to enter within the railing and enclosure around the temple. Whoever is caught shall have himself to blame for his consequent death. Like that's, that's a connect team right there. Like that, that's a welcoming like party, like come on in, right? And so this, there, there was, it was literally a wall of hostility that kept any outsiders out. This is wild. And so I believe that Paul does have this physical barrier in mind so that we can attach the deeper meaning to it. But this is what he says in verse 15, that he did this by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new person in the place of two, so making peace. And this is where it gets a bit dicey. Because this is the reason, and if we misunderstand Paul here, we're going to be like the people who arrest him in the, in the book of Acts because we misunderstand him. In fact, in chapter 3, he begins chapter 3 by saying, for this reason, I, Paul, am a prisoner. And so what he's about to explain here, when we get this wrong, this is the reason why Paul was put in prison. And Paul here is talking about the law, the Torah of God expressed, as he says, in ordinances. Now, Paul has a complex relationship to these ordinances, to the law, to the Torah. And Christians, what we have done is we've often overreached and we, we preach that Paul wanted to get rid of the law. And at no point ever in the scriptures did he ever, let me just say it again, ever want to get rid of the law. He wanted to situate the law, but he never wanted to get rid of the law altogether. And so we want to, I, want, I want to walk through four ways that Paul thinks about the law. Number one is that Paul continued to believe the law was holy and good. He says so as much in Romans 7.12 when he says, So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. That's as clear as, as we can get here that Paul isn't, isn't about just getting rid of the law. But even, even as he believed that the law was good, he also believed this, that the law could not produce what it commanded. 
So the law is good and holy and from God and expresses God's will. But the law itself does not produce what it commands. And we know this from the story of Exodus, which we're going to go through. I mean, this blows my mind whenever I read Exodus. So picture this. Moses is up on the mountain getting the Ten Commandments. And this is pictured as something like a a wedding ceremony. Uh, uh, You know, Moses comes down, he gives the people, he says, this is what God wants. So you want to do it? They say, yes, we will. God says we will. And there's this marriage ceremony. And Moses goes up to get the the, the tablets. And then he comes down and there's a golden calf. It's like, it's almost like this. It's like when you go to a wedding and the bride and the groom are Uh, signing the registry it's almost like at the signing of the registry one of them goes off and cheats on the other like right when it's about like just when it begun the people were faithless the law could not produce what it commanded something isn't bad because it doesn't do what it wasn't designed to do A traffic light is designed to keep us safe by uh, controlling the flow of traffic. But if I run a red light, does it make the traffic light bad in and of itself? Like, no, right? Like, like, no, it doesn't. We don't blame the traffic light for what I have done. The traffic light was telling me to stop, but I chose to go. In the same way, the law itself tells us how to live righteously But when we place wrong expectations on the law, and then it doesn't meet those false expectations, the problem isn't with the law, but with what Paul calls in Romans 7, the power of sin. Do you feel the complexity here? Third thing, going deeper, in fact, Paul could say that it was the commandment itself that even while remaining good, it aroused sin. The law, being good, arouses the bad. I was at a beautiful wedding at the Hunter on Friday, and we were sitting around good food, good wine, good people. We were talking. There was this, there was this humongous, like, crazy bright light at the back that I, I kind of noticed. And I was talking to someone, and she specifically told me while we were chatting, don't look at that light directly. It'll burn your eyes. Do I even need to tell you what I did? I I turned that sucker around. I looked. I stared at that thing. And if you have kids, you know this is all too clear. Don't, the word don't, is not a strange word in my household. And it wasn't until I told Evie, don't draw on the walls. You shouldn't do that. We gave birth to Picasso (laughs) by doing that. You see, Paul here is saying the law is beautiful it is good but because of the power of sin the law itself is co-opted it is taken captive and it arouses the very thing it lovingly warns against and so the law being good exposes and agitates what it warns against and finally what, what paul believes about the law he says that the law that was supposed to use was supposed to be used To attract was used to repel, was used to exclude the nations. The law and the ordinances were the raw materials that God gave to a group of people to build bridges to other cultures to compel them 
with their beautiful lives to come and worship Yahweh, Israel's God. And what they did with those raw materials, instead of building bridges to other cultures, they built walls to keep them out. And we do the same thing. As Christians, we become so proud of our election, of our being chosen. And then we begin to use the very things that God gives us for the sake of others to exclude others. And here he explains how, because this is the case, what does God do in Christ? He disarms the law. And that word abolish here, I, wanna, I, I hate doing this and I rarely do this. I think maybe this is the first time I've ever done this in a sermon, but that is not the best translation here. This is not, uh, Paul is not using this language here to, to actually get across what we think about abolish. He's using the word here, disarm. Jesus says, I did not come to abolish the law and the prophets. And here, there's, there's a better way to communicate this word here, and it's disarmed. He came to disarm the law. He came to disarm the thing that marked the people of God. And no longer would it be this that marked the people of God. And this is Paul's complex relationship to the Torah of God that eventually would get him arrested by the Jewish authorities towards the end of the book of Acts. He loves the law, but he understands the law, as good as it is, became a wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile because of the power of sin. And what Paul sees in the flesh of Jesus is that wall crumbled to the ground. Now the promises given to Abraham, which are fulfilled in the Messiah, are now ours because that's true. And the so what is exactly this. Paul continues in verse 19. That was heavy. 19, so then... You are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and the members of, of, of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus, Messiah Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him yous also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. You now are the temple. Yous are the dwelling place of God. Yous are now the place where heaven and earth overlap. We here are the place now that people should be able to come and say there's something weird going on here. Something of a portal. Something of a portal to another Realm, we are, yous are the lights in this broken system, the broken world where God's glory can shine through. And this is the point, that the blessing that was supposed to come through Israel as a nation to the nations is now coming to the nations through Israel's king, through his Messiah, through God's Messiah. And now as an apprentice of the king, as someone who is a disciple of Jesus, now we become conduits of Abraham's blessing. Yous are now incorporated into the divine life and love and mission of this beautiful God. And this means that the church is not a product to consume. This means 
that the church is the people of God together bearing witness to the rule and the reign of God. The church is not a club to join. It is a training ground to fulfill our vocations as kings and queens of the earth. Like Narnia wasn't stretching the truth there. Like that's our reality. Seated in Christ in the heavenlies, we are all kings and queens. The church is a place for the lost and for the weak and for the broken, for those that the systems of the world have disregarded and excluded. Nevertheless, it is a people to belong to and find healing from and find strength and wholeness. It's not a place where we come to just receive and only give criticisms. It is a blood-bought, beautiful bride of Christ. And so, a question we must ask ourselves is this. How have we used the things that God has given us to build bridges to other people, to other cultures? How have we used that not to do that, but to build walls, to actually keep people out? What's your view of people who are ethnically different from you? How, how, how do you react? Do you have something of an internal or implicit hierarchy of the kinds of people that deserve, quote-unquote, dignity or grace or compassion? Do you judge people's worth by their postcode? Oh, they live there. Okay. And I, I, can, I can so easily place someone in a box. Well, because they wear these kinds of shoes or they live in this kind of place or they drive that kind of car. And is there, is there anyone in your life, even now, a coworker, a neighbor? This is where it gets sketchy, right? Because you're like, this is great when it's like at 30,000 feet. Is there someone where you have built a wall of hostility around you to keep out? Is there someone who, in your heart of hearts, if Jesus were to come back and meet this person as judge and not as big brother, savior, king, You'd be totally, you'd be actually kind of okay with that. Favorable even. How does the gospel answer that, that hostility? Because whatever it is that you have, you have for the sake of your friends who don't believe yet. Whatever blessings that are yours in Christ are yours in Christ for the sake of the world. God didn't all of a sudden become simply about individuals being saved when the clock ticked over from B.C. to A.D. No, he chose use in Christ to be the conduit of his life, of his blessing, of his presence to those around you. Our lives together, together, not even solely or even primarily individually, is the place where heaven and earth now overlap. My life lived on its own cannot bear the weight of bearing witness to the crucified and risen Messiah. But our lives together, that. That's what's designed to not only house, but reflect the glory of God. And so my call to you this afternoon is to put away these small visions of what it means to follow Jesus. To put away these anemic mindsets of thinking that you can be a, an apprentice of Jesus on your own. You need others. We need each other. You know, I believe that if we begin to truly understand that the cross of Christ does not just obliterate the hostility between us and God, but the hostility between us and us, that the gospel is just as much about social relations 
than it is about between me and God, then we would really unlock the power to transform and be transformed. If we really begin to see that the gospel doesn't just heal our vertical relationships, but our horizontal ones, then we would really begin to grow up into the church I believe God is calling us to be, the church that I'm calling you to become a part of. And I wonder what kind of force, Lord, I wonder what kind of force we would be in our homes, at our places of study, at, at our play, at the office, in the boardroom, in the classroom, in our communities. What kind of people can we be if we, if we believed this, if we put this into practice, if this no longer was a rumor, but lived in our bones? Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you that you are good. We thank you that you are holy. And we thank you that you have come for us. That you saw fit to rescue us, to uh, not only snatch us out, Lord, but, but renew all things. And in all these, uh, Lord, I just pray now that you would draw near uh, your sheep, that you would draw near those who are yours, Lord. And we pray for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. And amen. One of the things we do as a response to celebrate this reality that he has not left us, that he has come for us, that he saw it fit to leave his own culture of heaven and embody weakness and frailty. One of the things we do to celebrate that is, is communion. I mean, or if you have a different, if you're coming from a different tradition, uh, the Eucharist or the Lord's Supper. And what we do and what that represents, if you follow Jesus here today, we invite you to that. You would have found a small cup with a little piece, a, a wafer and some juice in there. And what that represents is that when Paul talks about this wall of hostility coming down in his flesh, that it's by the blood of Jesus, that, that's what we are celebrating that we're celebrating as we take the bread into ourselves, that we are celebrating and uh, the picture, the reality that we are one with Christ and that we take him into ourselves. And we celebrate also the blood that was spilt for us, for our sins, for the healing of the nations. And so I invite you uh, to consider Jesus and to consider what it means to take Jesus into your body right now, physically. We thank you for all these things. In Jesus' name, amen and amen.